Hello and welcome to Coppola Connections, the podcast where I'm shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to find out are they the greatest film family of all time. The way I intend to do that is by watching every film in their collective filmographies. This is episode 13 where we'll be looking at the sequel to the ultimate sports movie, Rocky. Obviously, it's Rocky 2. For this chat, I was joined by Dom O'Brien, a sequel expert. So he was the perfect man to get on for this conversation. But before we get to that chat, if you would like some extra conversation between me and Dom where we talk about all things Nicolas Cage, and this is a really big, juicy slice I'll let you into a little spoiler. Dom is a massive Nicolas Cage fan, and we get to talk about some films that don't regularly get chatted about on that. If you want that chat, head on over to patreon.com forward slash pod, where you can get that and tons of other conversations for as little as $3 or £3 a month, plus some change. If you haven't seen this film and would like to watch it, please do check out a handy document in the show notes that will tell you if and where this film is streaming because obviously we speak about this film in all the gory details. So now is your time to step away from the podcast and join us once you've watched the film. So all that's left to do is to buy a house having only seen two rooms Get ready for the rematch of your life and chase a chicken as we make some Coppola connections. This guy just don't want to win, you know. He wants to bury you, he wants to humiliate you. He wants to prove to the whole world that it was nothing but some kind of a, a freak the first time out. Rocky. His whole life was a million to one shot, but he's about to show the world he's one in a million. Why don't you stand up and fight this guy hard like you've done before? That was beautiful. Rocky II, the story continues. I was wondering if uh, you wouldn't mind marrying me very much. I do. Thanks. The love continues. You're the best thing ever come that crazy life. The courage. The doctor said you shouldn't fight anymore. You recommended I don't fight, and I recommend that I do. The challenge. I want all of America, I want the whole world to see me destroy this man after two short rounds. Rocky, do you think you have a chance this time against Apollo? I don't know, it looks pretty bad. The hope. I never asked you to stop being a woman, you know. Please. Ask me to stop being a man. The tears. He's gonna get hurt because of you. Well, if he goes blind, you walk away. I can't. I love him. You The joy. He's really us. Adrian, I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> the pain. Don't worry about nothing. You just sleep as long as you want, okay? And I'm gonna be here when you wake up. The struggles. You go back to being a two-bit nothing. The dreams. I think we ought to knock his block off. Absolutely. Fifteen rounds for the heavyweight championship of the world. You think you're going to see a real 
real great battle in every sense of the word. That's what this fight is going to be. It's going to be a war. You're going down, man. You're going down. The most electrifying rematch in motion picture history. Rocky II, starring Sylvester Stallone, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Carl Weathers, and Burgess Meredith. Rocky II, the story continues. After episode three's look at the beginnings of the ultimate underdog saga, now we find ourselves back in the ring to talk about Rocky II. Released in 1979, John G. Avilson had been knocked off the director's chair and replaced by Rocky himself, Sylvester Stallone, as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to become the champ becomes a twice-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We were promised no rematch, but here we are. In my corner for this bout, talking tactics, mopping my battered brow, and holding my spit bucket is writer, 88 Films contributor, and sequel detective, Dom O'Brien. How are you, Dom? I'm not bad, thanks, mate. How are you? I, I, I'm very well. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to get back in the ring <laughs> to talk about, um, to talk about Rocky too. But before we do that, I just kind of um, wanted to have a little chat with you. Because obviously, yeah, I alluded to you being a sequel detective. Um, mm. What, like, what is your knowledge of the kind of the history of sequels? Like, especially in like 1979, were they a big thing around that time? <sighs> to, like, to, off the top of my head, in my knowledge, not particularly. I mean, the only sequels you really had prior to that, I think, would be uh, some of the uh, Planet of the Apes sequels mm-hmm. uh, from the 60s through to the early 70s. Uh, and it, with their diminishing returns and their box office sort of failing, I don't think it was something that people really looked at. Obviously, you've got French Connection, then you had French Connection Part 2 not long afterwards. Uh, but no one really did like a, a franchise, and that didn't really seem to come about until the sort of the late, like, late 70s, uh, towards the early 80s. So we had Rocky, and then we had Alien, and then we had... Aliens shortly after that in the 80s as well. So it seems to have sort of escalated literally from the 70s. The 60s didn't really have much, to my knowledge, and neither the 50s. Uh, but you did have sequels to those to films from those time periods, mm-hmm. either in the 80s uh, or uh, the early 90s, which I thought was really weird as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess... The, the, a big thing with that would be like American Graffiti, right? That kind of got like a mm. later sequel. Even even the kind of uh, The Godfather Part 1 and 2, we didn't get the third part until what, like 91 or something like that. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I did a little research and I found that the earliest sequel ever was in 1916. And it was uh-huh. a sequel to A Birth of a Nation and it is called the fall of a nation because apparently racism sells big in 1916 <laughs> bloody hell um so obviously yeah another thing like I've, I, I guess with sequels is that whole thing that like they weren't well a lot of time weren't really taken seriously right like yeah. what is what is your thing you obviously mentioned diminishing returns and stuff like that but like why are you such an advocate for sequels 
Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go really sort of nostalgic here, as much as I don't want to. But the, my earliest memory from watching uh, the, like the first film I can remember watching in the cinema was uh, Back to the Future Part Three. Uh, and, and I can remember arriving late to that. And I don't know whether it's psychosomatic or, or what, but I've never been late to the cinema since. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, what's that, 31 years ago, probably. Yeah. So I, I'm, I've not been late to cinema since. And also, for some reason, that was the first part I ever saw. I had never seen parts two, <laughs> uh, uh, one and two. So how, why I was in the cinema to watch that, um, I have no idea. But I've got a I've got a soft spot for anything where it's got like a a, a numeral or uh, like the return or uh, the revenge of or anything like that. I I don't know why I'm just sort of magnetized towards it, like some kind of ethereal being of, of cinema, and I just want to go and watch it and grab it. And that's not to say I don't like the first parts of certain films, but for some reason I've always found myself watching the the sequels prior to watching the original film and i could never work out why like i watched phantasm again i watched phantasm part three and then part two and then i watched four and then i came back to one at a much later date i just haven't quite worked out why i do that maybe it's just my weird mentality but uh yeah i've got i've got a massive soft spot for for sequels and yeah i maybe i'm 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 a mug for for liking things that are mass produced I'm, i'm not sure or just done for the sake of, of financial gain. But I always find sometimes, I mostly find that sequels are uh, have sometimes more interesting ideas than their predecessors. So the predecessor laid the groundwork and the sequel can basically go, right, we've got all that established, let's go completely mad. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like. I like a bit of madness. I, I think life's too serious and, I, and you need that bit of madness sometimes. I guess we'll get back to this in a bit more detail later on. So I'll just ask hmm. you for a yes or no answer uh, this time around. But is Rocky II an effective sequel in your eyes? Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, before we get on to talk about the Coppola family, I wanted to um, ask you what's your like views on like sequel and like franchise culture that we kind of live in now. Are you thinking like more sort of modernized sequels in uh-huh. terms of uh, like the Fast and Furious franchise and stuff like that? I think um, there is there is a point now where you can milk it a little bit too much mm-hmm. for the sake of it. I mean, it, it gets so diluted to a certain point that it sort of loses its own identity and just becomes something that's churning out specifically made for money. You know, if you watch, if again using Fast and Furious as a as an example, you've got the first Fast and Furious film, which is basically a rip off of Point Break, and then by the time you get to uh, Part Five, it's essentially forgotten all about the drag racing scene, even though there is one scene of drag racing, and then it goes straight into, uh, or oh, sorry, street racing rather, and then you go straight into this kind of bizarre, almost I don't, I don't know otherworldly action sequence. Yeah, it's like a a heist movie, right? Yeah, and I guess, like, and it's fascinating, like, to to the point of the Fast and Furious franchise, that a franchise that has been, like, it it kind of really gained its popularity in that fifth fifth go-round. And it's it's something that we don't really tend to see 
these days that franchises get to get to that point unless it's a kind of straight to dvd or straight to vod market where it's kind of like oh well we'll just tack on a, a two to it, it will be a do you know what I mean like a a, a story that is vaguely related to the first hmm. one and then we'll it'll be like a late yeah one of those like kind of i guess i guess a prime example to link it back to nicholas cage is there is a i picked up the eight millimeter sequel and then yeah once i bought it i like then looked online and found out it was oh it was a film that was made under a total different title with no like relevance to eight millimeter whatsoever but like sony pictures went oh well if we just rebrand it eight millimeter two we're gonna Uh get like we're gonna get people like myself and and, and you are gonna go oh eight millimeter yeah there's a sequel oh check that out and then it's kind of once we're half hour in and then we realize it's nothing to do with the seedy underbelly of snuff films they've just kind of they've duped me here it, it has a tendency to happen more frequently than you think as well i mean uh, a prime example of this is uh, is a sequel that everybody seems to love especially within i say the horror community but it's primarily like the american horror community that i can tell uh it's a film called um prom night two uh hello mary lou and that film itself is not really a sequel to prom night in any way, shape, or form, because it was shot as a completely different film. Mm-hmm. It was like a, it was almost like a Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff. Um, and then the producers thought, "Oh, we can." It's actually the producers this time. I think were, were, went, "No, we're not going to change the name on it," which is a rare occasion. And then the distribution company said, "No, we want to market it to more people," so we changed the name to it to to Prom Night Two. Mm-hmm. And then by that point, you've also got Prom Night Three, which is. Again, same character, but a completely different premise altogether with hauntings. And then by the, by the end of Prom Night 4, it's about an evil priest that kills people. <laughs> and it's like, how, does that, how do you jump from... So it's almost like... An, and that's what I like about sequels as well sometimes. You do, whether they realise it or not, have this kind of anthology feel to them because they haven't got a clue what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, uh, the house films if you've ever seen the house films uh horror series mm-hmm. uh they like i don't think they had any clear indication of what the hell they were doing with that series so you've got house one which is like a comedy horror house two which is a comedy family fantasy film with horror elements to it similar to maybe the monster squad you got house three which wasn't really house three it was the horror show and then was changed to house three in the uk which is like a, a serial killer film a bit like uh west craven's shocker like a serial killer comes back from the dead. And then House 4 was the only sort of sequel that was loosely tied into the first one because it had the same character that they killed off. And that's not a spoiler because you see it right at the beginning. And, <laughs> and but like his backstory is completely different and it's very tenuously linked to the first one. So it's like, what the? So it's a, this weird kind of mishmash of, of sort of portmanteau style to- storytelling. Mm-hmm. than these sequels i just find it bizarre and that's why i find it so fascinating well we're here obviously today to talk about a sequel that is very much rooted in being a direct sequel but before we talk about rocky 2 i must ask you when did you first become aware of the coppola family and i like to say as an entity that they are like it might have been a certain person like what was your oh. entry point but 
when was that moment when you realized oh fuck there's loads of them so the i think my entry point was my um my nan uh god rest her soul was your typical irish grandma in the sense that she loved violent things i don't know if that's <laughs> i don't know if that's typical but she's the, her bloodthirsty nature of 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 the love of physical contact sport seemed to seem to permeate uh you know we we there was when i was younger it was about the time when itv would show the likes of uh, karate kid quite often on the saturday night after uh, whatever Gladiators show or whatever it is mm-hmm. we watch. So we'd end up doing a double bill if we were around my nan's. It would be Gladiators and then if it was Karate Kid, because we're convinced that she fancied this in the RV, but I'm not going to get into that because it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then that sort of rubbed off on my sister as well, because my sister loves contact sport and loves uh, the Rocky films. But we hadn't really seen any of the Rocky films. So the first instance I had with the Coppola family, roundabout kind of way, I know this is strange but it uh my uncle was uh or still is quite a big film fan and he used to lend my nan a lot of his uh vhs box sets and at the time i think it was just after uh godfather part three had come out on vhs uh and it was the first time the box set had been released in like a full collection and i can remember the uh, my, it was on my nan's underneath my nan's TV and I can remember it was right next to that and some uh, Bud Spencer and Trace uh, uh, Terence oh I can't remember his name the, uh, the, the Italian uh, guys um, right next to those and next to whatever soap she was watching I can remember the colour of the box and it was that it was like a black box with gold lettering and for some reason because it was so simplistic and so clean my eye was drawn to it and because it had that giant 18 certificate on there as well which was this big red button of you're not allowed to watch this because of whatever reason i thought i had to look at it and i looked at it and i got told off for touching it and it was this i looked and i could see these pictures of um uh al pacino and diane lane and uh everybody else and it was like okay this is interesting and i could tell because it Obviously, the top of the writing is always says Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather. So I just thought, okay, this is interesting. So uh, I didn't really end up watching The Godfather until I was... Uh, I must have been in sixth form. That's when I finally saw it, when I was studying film. And I think just prior to that, I was aware of uh, Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And, I'd, and I'd seen Rushmore when it came out uh, on DVD. And uh, Jason Schwartzman was quite an interesting character. And that's when I found out, or someone said to me, oh, he's related to Nicolas Cage, and Nicolas Cage is related to uh, the Coppola family. It's like, what? And then that's when you start <laughs> doing your research, and you go, oh, bloody hell, there's loads of them. Yeah. Like, there's so many. Um, and, uh, and obviously, you, you know, Godfather Part Three, you've got that wonderful performance, and I use that sarcastically, of uh, Sophia Coppola. Um, as uh, as Michael's daughter, uh, so yeah, I just yeah that that like oh, okay, so not all the family are talented, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, she has proved herself to be talented in many other ways. Uh, <laughs> so, um, what would have been your first film that you would have seen that would have had Talia Shire in it? Uh, let me think. 
it might well have been Rocky Two, actually, looking back at it, because uh, again, I think uh, I, uh, with my sequel habits, I hadn't seen the first Rocky film. I watched Rocky Two first, <laughs> because why not? So yeah, but that was my—I think that was my first instance of it. But and then uh, shortly after that, I, that's when I watched Godfather, mm-hmm. and and then I realised, oh, okay, this is same. This is the same woman, and then. <laughs> Then the internet at the time was, you know, you could look, you could still look stuff up. And I looked up, I think, on IMDb and find some information. It's like, oh wow, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty interesting. And I left it at that. Didn't really <laughs> peruse anymore. What is your relationship with Rocky Two? Obviously, you said it was the first one you saw. After mm. seeing it, did you seek out the first one? Like, how many of them would have been out at the time you would have seen the sequel? So, um, I saw. I saw a sequel at when I was in sixth form. So what's that? Early two thousands. So yeah, I don't know. I have no idea why I hadn't seen any of these films prior. Um, Oh no, I take it back. Okay, I actually did see a Rocky film prior to that. I'd only seen bits of it, and it was Rocky (laughs) Four. And 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 I had seen bits of it because again, I think that was an ITV. It was on ITV one night, and I come downstairs and I got told off. Because I think it was just as Apollo Creed's uh, getting his face smashed in by Ivan, uh, and and I got told off because I was quite young. So that I blocked that out for some reason. So yeah, but <laughs> but fully all the way through was was Rocky Two, uh, and I watched that one, and I wasn't really keen on watching because I wasn't a big sports fan anyway, and and I was more into sci-fi. Uh, and then my friend said, no, no, this you know they're good. These these are good films, and I saw how good Rocky Two was. I went, okay, maybe I need to go back. But I didn't go backwards to Rocky 1 because I thought if they're showing the end of the fight of Rocky 1 in Rocky 2, I don't need to see the rest of the film. So I just <laughs> went straight to 3. <laughs> <laughs> and then worked my way all, all the way up to 5 at the time. Uh, and then, uh, I, I, yeah. And I thought, okay, these are good. And I only watched Rocky 1 about 15 years ago. That was my first time. So I've already said it on this podcast. I hadn't, mm. I'd maybe seen Rocky one years ago and then like kind of, kind of just put them all to the back of my mind. And then like, it wasn't until like last year that like I sat down and watched all six of them in like a great big, like boom, 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 boom. Cause I think it was that thing like yourself. I wasn't a sports fan and mm. I was like, I kind of felt like I had seen it. In, in a way because it's just like it's a franchise that's permeated culture so much that you kind of think about like uh, Bill Conti's score whether it's like gonna fly now or something like that and you're like oh yeah I, I know that whether it's like the 118 adverts or something like mm. that it's like and it's pastiche and parodied so much and I was like uh, not really for me and then like I, I I'm a big fan of this franchise like to mm. To, to put it lightly so um let yeah let's talk about that franchise but before we do in 1979 francis ford coppola had released apocalypse now carmine coppola provided music for the black stallion david shire scored norma ray the promised fast break and old boyfriend which starred his then wife talia shire who also appeared in john frankenheimer's prophecy and was the focus of today's and was starred in the focus of today's chat, Rocky Two. Let's ring the bell 
and have a discussion on it. So, um, what, yeah, what are your thoughts? What are your like kind of initial thoughts when you first saw Rocky 2? Uh, I was confused because there was part of me thinking, I thought Rocky, without having seen it, I thought Rocky had won the fight in the first film. So then I'm watching it going, I was told that he won the fight. And then my friend's going, no, this is, he definitely lost. You know, <laughs> just he, and, and I think when you see that, 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 that whole sequence at the beginning, where it's a really brave thing to do to show the last few minutes again, just from different angles. Um, when you see that and you realise that he, he wasn't in it to, to win, really, he just, he did it because he wanted to prove something. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and that kind of started resonating with me a bit more and I felt a bit more connected to Rocky as a character. And what I really love about Rocky 2 is how much it's not really about the rematch because that's only what the last 20, 20 minutes of the film mm-hmm. is that it really is a character piece about how he is after finding fame and stardom from not winning a match, but be, being the underdog. What is fascinating about, I think, the Rocky franchise is that they are basically a cipher to tell Sylvester Stallone's story. So like the the kind of background of the first Rocky kind of had that script like flying around for ages and couldn't get it made and like kind of had to go to bat like uh, Robert Chartoff and Irvin Winkler, like were in his corner to really uh-huh. like be like, I've, I've written it, but I, I want to star in it. And then like, you kind of look into the the background on this one. And then uh, John G. Avildsen had said he couldn't do the sequel because he was prepping for another Coppola Connection film, uh, Saturday Night Fever, which he uh, inevitably didn't end up making. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, and yeah, and then Sylvester Stallone obviously said to them, like, well, I want to, I want to direct this one as as well. And then like the studio were hesitant about it. And I think you kind of like, you get that thing, like, cause obviously he had directed Paradise Alley at this point, And that was like a kind of commercial and critical failure. So like you kind of see the threads of his real life turn up on screen in this because it, it very, uh-huh. like as much like like you're saying as much as it's a sports movie it's not like it, you don't cut you cut you might come for the boxing but then you leave finding yourself being more fascinated with the the human stories and the story that very much flows throughout this is that thing of like being thrust into stardom and like kind of can you can you maintain that stardom? Because he's offered all this stuff of doing the adverts and stuff like that, and he, he can't really maintain it and then gets to points where he's what? He's, he's broke as a joke, like looking for a job and stuff like that. And it's it's all quite it's all quite sad stuff, really. And it's like but I think that really packs a punch when we kind of get to this, get to the like the the rematch at the end. Yeah, I do. I find it quite. A, um, when I was when I actually rewatched it uh, prior to us talking about it, um, I found myself actually uh, getting quite tearful in a few spots that I hadn't before. Mm-hmm. And it, I think, I can't work out if it 
from a legacy point of view, it resonated with me more because I'd watched Rocky Balboa about three or four months ago, and that was still fresh in my mind. Uh, but also, there's that bit when he is uh, he's doing the adverts dressed as a caveman. No, just keep it rolling, keep it rolling. Just read it off the dummy cards. Dummy cards? Please, go on. Wait a minute. I'd like to explain something. Uh, you know, I ain't punchy. I got what you call, like, I don't know, a relaxed brain, but I ain't punchy, you know? It's just the way I talk here. What's the difference? Can, we, can you just do it the way it's written? Well, that ain't right. This whole thing here ain't right, you know? What is it right? Well, you're a rude guy. I'm trying very hard, and you're being rude. That's bad manners, ain't it, Adrian? Yes. But I tell you, I gotta be almost punchy to be doing this in front of my wife. You wanna quit? Then quit. Leave. Get out of here. I didn't want you for the setup in the first place. You have. And they're talking about him. They're treating him like he's an idiot, and he's he's struggling to read. And um, I that's when I started crying because I could I could totally relate to that because. When I was, I, I'm because I'm dyslexic. It's hard sometimes to read certain things to understand certain bits of information. Mm -hmm. And I think when someone is impatient and just wants you to look, you're, you're this person. You're capable of doing that. Just do it. And there's no kind of incentive for them to do it other than a bit of money. And it and it feels like you can see in his eyes that he's kind of dying a little bit. Yeah. And then that whole idea of when Adrian gets pregnant and he ends up reading while she's pregnant and then reading to her later on when she's in the hospital. And he's, he's, you can see his development of how he's taught himself. Like, I'm going to show someone I can do this. Mm -hmm. It's not just about boxing. It's about proving to people that like, I'm capable of doing much more than that. And it just really got to me. And I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just getting soft in my old age. And now these films definitely have a, a tendency to be able to do that. So um, mm. before we go any further, can you, for anyone who's listening who, who might not have seen it or needs a bit of a refresh, could you give a, us a brief synopsis of what this film is about? Do you want me to give you the proper synopsis or do we want like an abbreviated version? I'll have the proper synopsis, yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so uh, this is the first time I've done this by providing a synopsis for someone. It's usually the, usually the host that does it. This is interesting. Um, so the uh, the premise of Rocky Two is basically after losing um, to Apollo Creed at the end of the first film, mm -hmm. uh, he is still seen in many people's eyes as the champ, even if he didn't win by uh, default or uh, points. Uh, and because of that, he is offered uh, a number of lucrative opportunities to earn money after he decides to quit boxing completely. And obviously the amount of damage that was done to his face from Apollo, he's been advised by uh, doctors not to do it again, otherwise he'll go blind in his eyes, in one of his eyes. So he sets out and wants to settle down with Adrian, uh, his girlfriend from the first film, uh, and start a life. And it's really just about his life and how he's coping with the newfound fame, the brief newfound fame they had with the bit of money, then losing that money, and then having to go back to square one and try and prove that he is someone again and not just 
as an idiot that people seem to think he is. <laughs> uh, on top of that, you've also got Apollo Creed, who, despite winning the last match, doesn't feel like he won fairly because everybody still sees Rocky as the the overall rock, the winner, and he wants to challenge the champ again and uh, prove that he is the ultimate and the best boxer there is. And then that comes into uh, Apollo's fascination with, or, or obsession really, with stardom and being the best. So how do you see Apollo as the quote-unquote villain of this piece? Because I, I have a theory of who the real villain of the Rocky franchise is, but we'll get into that. What do you think of Apollo as yeah the villain of this movie? Um, I think he he's played... If you if you watch it the first time, he definitely seems like the villain. If you watch it a few more times, there's a bit more nuance to his performance, and he comes across more as a tragic character, um, as well as tragic as he can be towards someone who just won't admit defeat. He he so badly wants to be the best at everything, and it could be an analogy for like his when he was growing up and how he was treated. There's no real backstory given to that. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, when he, he he's toying around and then, you know, Rocky in a press conference is just having a laugh at people and being himself. And then you've got Apollo Creed has put up this front and this persona that everybody expects from him and then, you know, ends up being laughed at. He just doesn't take kindly to it and just wants to, much like Rocky, be taken seriously and go, look, I'm the best of the best. And then Rocky doesn't really care, and that bothers him yeah. so much. He just doesn't want to. He just doesn't want to uh, admit the fact that he won, as he did. He has to prove it by absolutely knocking him out. There's a scene I think that really captures that when, like, Apollo can't let it go, and one of his <laughs> trainers, uh, Tony Burton's character, is just there, like, really passionate, being like, "Let it go, let it go." let it go and we kind of get those like like throughout it his wife is saying to him like wouldn't you rather be like spending time with your kids instead of mm. like just fawning over all this news footage and watching replays and kind of like driving himself crazy like because my feeling is the the true villain of the rocky franchise is paulie like i, I was think- gonna say that as well yeah because it <laughs> seems like he is like yeah, like in, in this one, I think what's like very interesting is that kind of like role reversal we get between Rocky and Paulie, where like kind of Paulie stepped into like his shoes, like metaphorically, of like he's now working for Gazzo. He's like now like strong arming people. He's he's kind of walking around like he's the, do you know what I mean? Big, big Billy Bulls. And like then you've got like, Rocky ends up working in the meatpacking plant and stuff like that. And it's like, and then like, it's that thing of you realize that Rocky would give Paulie like the shirt off his back if, even if he didn't have anything himself. Whereas Paulie's just kind of like, well, better luck next time, pal. Do you know what I mean? I'm sorted now. And he's kind of just, just, uh, swanning about. So, um, on, on the thing of, uh, yeah, uh, Gazzo and stuff like that. I just kind of want to like draw back 
to uh, a, a pertinent scene at the beginning, which is the proposal that Rocky does at the zoo, which I'm not sure if you picked up on this. I think for me, it, it very much felt like a reference to a, a line from Gazzo in the first film where he says, uh, take her to the zoo, uh, retards like the zoo. And that's a quote. That's not me. Uh, mm. I don't like, but um, yeah, what do you, what do you, what do you kind of make of the, that scene and and the the relationship of Rocky and Adrian in this film. I think um, that scene in itself, I again, I didn't notice those undertones from the first film. There, uh, I did. It does come across to me, maybe just because I'm a soft touch, but it 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 was a really lovely moment where it's quite straightforward and you know he's just walking around and just saying look you know he's so straight he's such a straightforward guy is there's no he has all this pomp about him when he as later films go on when he earns more money and earns the ability to live in certain houses but prior to that he's just an honest guy that just wants to get on and enjoy his life and there's that I don't know why I just smirked when he proposes to Adrian and she's like, yeah, okay. And it's just, it's like so bog standard. There's no, there's no like the standard Americanized sort of Hollywood romance of, yeah, I'd love to and jumping on him and all that stuff because Adrian is very much um, a very uh, quiet individual anyway, very closed off. But as the films go on, much like Rocky, she changes and her character develops a lot more than, to what she is and a bit more feisty but I, I, I don't know I didn't I just I, I feel like I'm going off track slightly no. but I but I didn't find uh, that connotation to the first film um, I did notice obviously for, for some reason in the, in the 1970s it was totally okay to keep tigers at a like a waist height cage yeah, <laughs> not worried. Not worried about them jumping over the cage to attack them. Um, but also, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You go, man. I, I, I also really appreciate the fact that when she she says yes, and he goes, he's so happy. You can tell in his face that he's so happy, and and he the way he vocalizes it, and then says to the the tiger, is just milling around the place. Now you could come as well, and you know he's just so happy. He doesn't care. Uh, and it just shows you that you know the boxing for him, at least in that moment, doesn't mean anything. It's yeah. just about the love of, of that person that, that trusted him. Well, so even the way he pro- proposes, where he says like, what, "What what do you think you're doing for the next forty, fifty years?" and it's like, <laughs> "If if you wouldn't mind too much, if you wouldn't mind marrying me too much," and it's like it's just all very like nonchalant. And I think it mm. is like it, it's it's a big testament to to Sylvester Stallone's writing that he manages to create these very like nuanced characters and this like very sweet but not saccharine like uh, love story between Rocky and Adrian and what I like about this is we get like we get glimpses to like uh, almost like scenes from the first one like when Adrian's back working back in the pet shop and stuff like that even to like the way the shots are framed and Rocky's mm. kind of working back at the gym and he's going to the gym a bit more and stuff like that. And he kind of comes in, I think like he makes like another, like the first one, he's always going and making like really shit jokes and he like kind of comes in and does it again. And it's, 
it's 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 a nice i think it's a nice way that it kind of shows that like this film very very cleverly sets like the equilibrium of it again do you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's like instead of going like i don't know it could be that difficult second album thing where it's like right now he's like a success and like we're going to explore that it's like no how can we get him back down to being that working man underdog that that we that we as an audience um get behind um so yeah uh, i guess one of the people we should speak about as well is burgess meredith as mm-hmm. mickey what do you think of burgess meredith's performance in this film i i think it's probably next to stallone it's probably the best performance in the whole film in my opinion because there's that that bit when um obviously after rocky's at i think it's just after he gets laid off uh, at the meatpacking plant uh and he goes walking and he goes to the gym and he's and he gets uh mickey thinks he's being broken into and then he sees Rocky and then Rocky's talking to him about, you know, wanting to get back into boxing again just for the sake of it, you know, because he knows that outside of, he finally realises that outside of that ring, no matter what he does, no matter how good his intentions are, it's, no, it's not good enough. He's no one. Mm-hmm. Whereas in that ring, that small square, he's, he's more open and more himself than he's outside of it. And that bit when he's talking to uh, Mickey and he's saying, okay, can you block this punch? And then waiting for the finger to come across and he can't block it quick enough. And then you can see Mickey isn't angry at him. He's, I think Mickey's actually terrified for him if he wants to get back in that ring and wants to do another fight because he doesn't want him to lose his sight and possibly lose his life in a fight that means nothing at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I... Yeah, I think it's just the way he performs. There, there is one moment I think when uh, Burgess Meredith uh, just uh, his accent slips ever so slightly, and he sounds a little bit posher than he should do for about for for maybe one or two <laughs> lines. And I kind of like, oh no, I don't want to. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. But <laughs> Mickey is a character. I really like. He's your, he's been satirized so much. Mm-hmm. in so many different things and become a pastiche of himself and part of the cultural zeitgeist as well in some respects. But you go back and you see his performance, you realize just how good it is. There's more to it than just those um, cartoonish sort of caricature moments that many people would assume he would be like with his, his sideways jaunty uh, say, um, uh, beanie hat and you know his squinty eye and his certain way of of, uh, of saying certain sentences and words. I think it's amazing. That bit when they're in the gym and, and you know, Rocky wants to just help and, and pick up the uh, the spit bucket, you know, you can tell. He looks over him. You can see this just from a look that he's so annoyed that he's he, Rocky's doing that. But when they finally start training again, you, you can see... You know, there's there's a, there's almost like a uh, a father son relationship there, and I think that's what's quite special about it. There's that great line that uh, Mickey says to him, where he says, "Forget it, kid. You got the heart, but you ain't got the tools no more. Now forget it." Is that right? That is right. Yeah. 
Well, maybe it's you who ain't got it no more. You know that? Huh? Yeah. That, I think, encapsulates that thing you're talking about. That, like, you do get this feeling as, as brash and as kind of, like, uh, down-putting that Mickey can be to Rocky. There is definitely, like, heart in him. And, like, he, like... It's the closest we see in this franchise of a father figure that that Rocky has, which um, makes something that happens in the sequel very, very uh, pertinent. And uh, <laughs> big. Uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to mention is that I found uh, quite, uh, uh, quite, yeah, quite, quite great about this is how how they like it it manages to capture how like much of a joke that Rocky's become. And you kind of touched on it with that scene and like the guy, he's not even respected by the guys in like the boxing gym and kind of like, I think this is where it comes back to that thing where it mirrors uh, Sylvester Stallone's real life is, is like, it can just show you how quickly as like an actor you can become or like a, a director or whatever, you can become like out of the loop and like not au fait with, do you know what I mean? Like not, not thinking like, cause it's that thing of like, he had that fight. He done, he done amazingly well, but now he's back in that gym. People are talking to him like he's a piece of shit. And it's, it mirrors that thing of like Sylvester Stallone had that bad fit, like bad reaction to Paradise Alley. And like, I guess he himself would have very much felt a bit like, oh, like, do you know what I mean? I'm like, Mm-hmm. I've I've been in like an Oscar nominated film. I've I've directed like my own film, and then like, but everyone thinks I'm a, everyone thinks I'm a fucking joke. Like, and I think like I don't know. If, I think I, yeah, I think that's a uh, yeah a very fascinating uh, aspect. That, that it's, it's, it's life imitating art, though, isn't it? Really, when you when you boil it down, um, and again, I think. If you look at all of the Rocky sequels as they go on, you can see obviously that rise to stardom that he had and, and the respect he started getting within Hollywood is echoed within those sequels, mm-hmm. specifically within Rocky uh, Four, yeah. and then by obviously by Rocky Five, you know what had happened with that and and how people feel towards that. Obviously, being what many people think is the worst entry in the series, I disagree. I know it's a hot topic there, but I definitely disagree on that. But it's we'll, we'll get back to that later. Yeah, but it's um, he. You can see his fall from grace, and then they had that period after the. Uh, so he had the early nineties, then happened, and he had that whole action sequence uh, that he had doing stuff like um, Demolition Man through to Cliffhanger, and then uh, Assassins, which was like, I think. I love Assassins, but I think that was a downhill slope from him. Because so you, you had Assassins and Specialists within the same sort of time frame. And that was kind of like a downhill spiral because he was just doing thrillers that no one really cared about at the time. Mm-hmm. And then by that point, you know, by the early 2000s, he did, obviously did uh, Driven, that Formula One film that Rennie Harlan did that no one seems to remember. Uh, and rightly so, I think. But... Uh, he then went and descended into like the DTV realm for a, a brief moment where, where the action heroes, what, what a lot of people seem to think the action heroes go to die 
which is, I think, is deeply unfair because, um, you know, just as just a sidetrack, like if you look at a lot of that, yeah, you look at Seagal's films, absolutely, that is where he's gone to die and get fatter and more racist. <laughs> and then, you, but you've got people like Dolph Lundgren who went in there first uh, and, you know, he made some absolute, you know, stone cold straight to video bangers that I could absolutely recommend to a lot of people because they're, they're really great films, honestly speaking. And then, you know, Van Damme, a lot of people say, well, Van Damme hasn't made a decent film and all that stuff. No, he made, he's got his quality films that people seem to think from the, the, the late 80s to the early 90s or mid 90s at least. And then his early 2000s stuff, which was all straight to video, was some of the best stuff he'd done that people seem to sort of ignore. So I digress slightly, but, you know, Stallone did all of that stuff. He did a great um, thriller called, um, well, it's called Detox for some reason in, this, in the UK, but in the US it's called um, uh, Now You See Me or something along those lines. And it's a really great thriller that was supposed to go straight to, uh, it was going to go to the theatre, theatrical, uh, and he went straight to video, which is a shame because it's really polished thriller and it's a quite a violent thriller for that time period but then he had a rise again after that period of time in in the sort of the mid-2000s and he ended up when he ended up doing i think balboa is when he's on his rise again and that's where you can see again his his career is echoed within rocky he's in his he's in a certain time frame of his life he's had these great hits great career hits behind him he's well known he's he's sort of slowing down a little bit and people want him to come out of retirement or come out of what he's doing to do something else completely and you can see that echoes through those films so yeah so it was, it was kind of a, <laughs> a bit of a wordy way of getting around to saying yeah it, there's there's connections between both the films and his uh, his life that run parallel so what do you think of sylvester stallone's performance in rocky 2 considering like he was what he wrote it, he was directing it, mm -hmm. and he stars it. Honestly, it's one of his best. I, I actually prefer his, his performance in Rocky 2 to Rocky 1. Uh, I, uh, but, and I think Rocky 2 is his best performance as Rocky after... Uh, sorry, his, his best performance, and then that's followed by Rocky Balboa. I think Rocky 3, 4, and 5 was not really his best performances as Rocky as a character, even though probably some people's most enjoyable versions of Rocky, but the quintessential Rocky as he is, which is this, you know, not able to think, you know, he's not a, a, a massive, uh, he's not, he hasn't got intelligence, like a big intelligence, but he's got a need to want to um, do the best he can and, and be seen as a nice guy and want to live a happy life. You can see that running parallel between Rocky, Rocky II, and Balboa. Mm -hmm. That whole, in fact, if anything, if you took, I think if you took three, four, and five out of the equation and put those, the other three films together, you'd have a beautiful, really great trilogy there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's just my opinion, at least. Well, the I think one of the things that's like fascinating about Sylvester Stallone is the fact that like he like a lot of people assume that he is dumb 
And I mm. think like they assume he is Rocky in real life. And like from many accounts and the fact that like he writes a lot of the films he's in and stuff like that proves to you that he is like the smartest guy in the room a lot of the time and can kick the shit out of you if he <laughs> needs to. But it's I think I think the fact that he's managed to create this character that people like can't see the lines between him and the character just mm. just proves that like he's gr- like it's, it's it's great writing because like yeah and to your point of like rocky in this one i think what sylvester sloan gets to do is play like different beats that he doesn't get to do in the first one like because mm-hmm. he's got that added weight of He's got Adrian there. She's pregnant and stuff like that. So we really get to see that, like, whereas in the first one, like, he feels like he's got something to prove. In this one, it's like he's got something to prove. Can't really prove it because he's got something that means more to him than just his kind of own selfish endeavor of getting in the ring. He's like, well, now I've got to provide for my wife and my unborn child. So I've got to try and do something else. And like those scenes we get where he's kind of going around like the job offices and stuff like that. It's like mm-hmm. you get a real sense of pathos for him. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, and, and, and I think there's a moment like where he's, I think he's boxing in the, in the basement or something like that of the house. And like, like he has, he has an exchange with Adrian where he's like, I don't really know how to do anything else after he's lost his job at the, the mm. packing plant and stuff like that. And it's, it's, you get, you get to, you get to really tap into some like sadness in like the kind of the, the character and yeah, like, um, well, yeah, the character's story. Yeah. I, I, I felt that moment there when he shows, he really does show his, um, uh, his emotions really to Adrian you know he's quite he lays himself out quite bare there and it's raw and I felt myself I don't know whether it's because of the age I am now or what but I felt myself really understanding and connecting where he's coming from like I'm not a, I'm not a boxer I mean you, you <laughs> I, my arms will break at the, the easiest <laughs> thing you know what I mean but it's he him saying that he hasn't got a career and there's no way of doing it, the only thing he knows how to do is this because that's what he's good at doing, is very much, you could have related to many people that are struggling in, in, in jobs as well and not sure what they want to do in their lives. Because you get to that point in, you know, like the you know, late 30s or early 40s or whatever, and you go, well, I've been doing this for so long, but I'm better than this, but I don't know what else I need to do. Yeah. to move forward and, it, and it's very for some reason it, I just found it incredibly relatable at that moment in time and again this you make me watch this film and I end up crying more than I was expecting to cheers just cheers for that um, <laughs> but it's just it, it I found it more um, it, it is it's, it's more pertinent to me now than it was when I first saw it like the first time it was yes it's just a boxing film with you know some that with all the boxing at the end and, and just a lot of people talking and now it's no i really love this film because it's all, all of that talking is the best part of the film and the boxing is whatever to me at the end 
Yeah, because you get that thing of like, you get the pull of his kind of his pride and like the pull of his like of his loved one in Adrian, mm. and I think like that very much speaks to the pull of like the franchise of where it's gonna go as well. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I think like that that's very interesting. But then we kind of um we get that like I think it's the moment when we see that like. Apollo Creed is like on TV and stuff like that, and like really like is saying like what a joke like uh-huh. uh, Rocky is and that, and then we get the moment where it's like, <laughs> well, we get Mickey in what he looks like he lives on a ship. There's a moment he's like he, he's eating crackers and soup. Uh, he's got like he's got like look, you can imagine he's in like a little string vest, and then he comes to see he comes to see Rocky, and it kind of like that's when we. Like we're back on the fight mm-hmm. is going to happen. First of all, we get uh, the great scene where um, Mickey says to him, "We're gonna need s- greasy fast speed," and then he does the like chasing of the chicken, <laughs> and then we get that montage of Apollo fighting. And this is one of the questions I wanted to ask. Mm. You, you probably don't have the answer, but I'm not sure if you picked up on this. There's just no. Uh, I just want to know who the fuck is the guy who's sketching Apollo. I'm not sure if you noticed this. this guy with like kind of like Salvador Dali mustache, just doing like a pencil sketch of Apollo whilst he's training. It's just a yeah. very bizarre, like added, added beat. Um, but then was just speaking of sadness. This film really does hit like a real sad note when his training is interrupted when. Adrian gets taken into hospital. Um, the baby is born premature, but she's in a coma. And then we get like, well, basically like a, a montage of sadness, right? Mm. It is, yeah. I mean, okay, so I'll, I'll come back to the Salvador Dali guy first because <laughs> I, I, I want to avoid the sadness as much as possible. Um, I think that guy... I, it's just a theory, but I think that's the same guy that ends up painting the uh, the fight between Apollo and Rocky at the end of Rocky Three. I want to say <laughs> that's the same. I want to say that's the same guy, um, and I kind of hope it is, or someone he knows within the. I don't know. I just assume that would be that'd be quite cool. Like at the end of Rocky Three, there's just is that creepy guy with the moustache in the corner just sketching them having a fight. <laughs> I think it's just. Just out of nowhere, just comes and just go. I'm just going to sketch this fight really quickly, and I'm going to paint it without them looking. Um, Apollo's then, got him on staff. Do you know what yeah. I mean? He's got him on the payroll. Like if I'm fighting, if I'm training, you're there. You're sketching. <laughs> Can you make me some really nice looking boxer shorts that I need for when I'm boxing in a four? They're going to be really <laughs> lucky. No. Um, but I also find yeah that montage as well with Adrian. Uh, and Rocky, like I said, it's when he's reading to her. And that is so sad because even though their son is born prematurely, like he doesn't want to see his son without his wife being there. And that's really heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not I'm not a parent that I know of. Um that, that and I know for a fact. I, I I can I can I can reson I can I can't relate to it, but I can certainly feel the sadness there of 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 a partner because I'm married. I understand that person if they were ill or 
unwell or in a coma or anything, you wouldn't want to leave their side because you want to be there for them if yeah. they wake up or if there's any problems. And I think when he said, I, 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 I might have misheard this, but is there a bit when he's there and he's saying, like, they can hear you if you're still in a coma or something like that? I might have misheard that. Um, and that's why he starts reading to her. And I think that's just wonderful. Um, the only problem I've got with that scene is the way she wakes up. Because um, she wakes up like she's just had a nap. Well, one, one of the big questions I have on this is how long is she in that coma for? Because like, there is a point where it's like, get you want to be by your wife's side. But at the same mm. time, somebody's got to look after that baby. You can't like, like do you know what I mean? There, there, there's no like, you don't get a clear distinction whether she's in a coma for like a like a few days or like mm. a month. Like there's no like real distinction of how how long she's in that coma for. I think Paulie's gone down to the wall and he's trying to palm off the kid for a, a couple of uh, like I don't know twenty Rothmans and a, and a gold watch or something. <laughs> like, and you know I know. <laughs> I'm surprised the kid was still there. I think he might have just got away with it. I still think he sold the kid. God, I hate Paulie so much. Look, I'm just, <laughs> I try not to, but now you've said it, I can't not hate Paulie. Mm -hmm. It just irritates me. But um, yeah, I do find that the, 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 lapse, the time lapse there doesn't make much sense narratively. Um, mm -hmm. But again, it's nice to have a montage that isn't scored by Bill Conti in, in, in so much so. Well, I... It's like underscored, really, um, but I do really like the, the 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 contrast between what's going on with Rocky and Apollo. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you've got Rocky going through grief and and trying to get on with his life, and everything he's trying to do right, he's trying to do it, and things are still going wrong. And then Apollo just won't give up. It's like a it's like a dog with a bone, just won't give up on this idea and this notion of having to beat Rocky for his own self-worth. And it's, again, you think, oh, that would be quite motivating seeing more boxing, you know, from Creed's side. And no, it's just as depressing yeah. because he, he's not letting it go at all. You know, he's got a problem. Yeah, because within that as well, we get that scene between Rocky and Mickey where they're in the church and like, you get that turn from Burgess Meredith where he's like angry to begin with, kind of like mm. saying to him like, you've got this one chance, like you're going to blow it now and stuff like that, where he, he ends up like admitting defeat and he's like, if you want to wait by Adrian's side, I'll wait there with you. And it like, again, it builds up this like family type bond between them two. And it's like, when, like, which makes the payoff when, as, as kind of hokey as it is when Adrian mm -hmm. wakes up, when she delivers that line, which is like, win, win. What are you waiting for? Like, I, I, I'm like, even just like saying it, I want to kind of mm. get up and like, I want to go for a fucking run. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I want to run around the streets of Philadelphia. Um, so, yeah, I like to um, break down quickly what we get in the training montage for this film. So it is as follows. We get one-armed press-ups, hitting metal, a lovely addition to the training montage, I must have. <laughs> Pull-ups on a climbing frame, skipping, speed bag, 
very the, 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 some of this is very uh pedestrian fare sparring he's doing the stuff with the medicine ball he's doing weights he's doing log squats he's doing sit-ups with punches in the gut but possibly the thing that has kind of lived on past this film is the chicken chasing um so what do you think of the montage like his the, the things that rocky's doing throughout this montage I'll be honest with you. The chicken chase is the highlight of the whole series. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, I, I think the chicken chase is a really good representation of trying to make him move faster. I mean, you know, you, again, it's really hard not to compare these films when the, the, they're so ingrained in each other. Um, but you look at that montage, the most classic montage, which is the one from Four, as he's training and, you know, which has been parodied so much to the point of excess with, uh, you know, skipping rope and getting really angry with a skipping rope and then using logs. Again, it seems to all stem from Rocky Two for some reason. Um, and I find that the chicken is such a bizarre kind of moment because it's not, it's in the montage, but it's done more as a scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to a quick cut. And it's so kind of, I think it's quite farcical in the way it's done. And you go, oh, okay, this is this is ridiculous. And you go, actually, no, if he can catch that chicken, he'll be fast enough to beat a guy that can knock him seven days to Sunday. Yeah, I, I, I love that it, it, it birthed the line that we get earlier on in the film where mm. Mickey, Mickey first tries to get him to do it and he's like, I feel like a Kentucky Fried idiot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot about that line. I did laugh, yeah. What's the matter with you? You're like a Kentucky fried idiot. And then, and then we get the run, which uh, from doing some digging, when that run, uh, people have like done some like working out, like uh, Philadelphia residents and that, to find out like how long that run would be. And it is something to like the effect of 30 points two miles he would have run like the route he takes to be from that place to end up where he does it's yeah 30.2 days which is four miles longer than a marathon and there's 800 extras of school kids whilst he does the run and um one of the things really need to uh add is what do you think of like bill conti's um like reimagining of Gonna Fly Now that he has for the second film. Like that kind of I, 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 I think it's uh, I think it's more inspiring as well. I, I know I'm saying a lot about the sequel saying, yeah, it's actually better than the first. I, I generally believe that. But the score for Rocky II is a lot more melancholic. And when it does happen, we've got the, the Gonna Fly Now uh, sort of revisit I felt even more empowered because of that. Yeah, it, it, it very much feels like a product of the time as well, because like yeah. disc, discos happen, so like all of a sudden it's got slap bass on it, so it's like bow, 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 and then like you got like the kids' choir as well, and they're like, mm. and it is, it has got like a bit more of a like pomp and like I don't know something to really give you like a kick up the arse, like, and it's quite. <laughs> It's quite refreshing because obviously, like the 
the original version has kind of been played to death as well to kind of get like a a slight left turn on it like mm. it's, it's it's that and Vince DeCola's uh, reimagining for the Rocky Four soundtrack are, are the two I tend to go to the most. Um, <laughs> one of the things I, I, I need to mention is it really takes the wind out of the sails of the first film when he runs up them steps. When he does it in the sequel and all the kids run up the stairs with him. <laughs> <they're> like, <laughs> yeah, but they haven't been running 36 miles. Or yeah, whatever it is, but so, it, it doesn't. Well, they, they look like they're running with him a good, a good old whack, and like it doesn't look as impressive. Like when he gets to the top in the first one, you're like, oh, he's fucking achieved something. Whereas in this one, it's like they're kind of, it's kind of like, oh, a load of kids could do it as well. Like, come off it, mate. I, I want to say that that like they, all of those kids have just got twins. So what they did was they tagged each other in like towards the end of it and they just ran up the stairs and he's like, yeah. And it's like, they all look the same. And I said, if you've been running that long, you'd think anybody looks the same. But it's just, yeah, I, yeah, it does kind of devalue it just a touch. But I, you, you, you're caught up in the moment. You're caught up in the emotion, aren't you? So you don't really go, oh, those kids would have been running for ages as well. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, no, but I, I, I genuinely think this is a better film than the first, in my opinion. So I guess one of the big things about this film is the kind of like uh, the gimmick they use of that thing of like Rocky fighting uh, right-handed instead of uh, a southpaw mm-hmm. and then ch- changing at the last minute. Uh, but like, I'm not sure if like, yeah, again, from researching it, that is only written into the script because Sylvester Stallone had a like bench pressing competition with someone whilst they were filming and tore his left pectoral muscle. So just for ease of filming, that's why they're like, oh, if we do it all right-handed, we can get away with it. But like I think that like it adds to the film. And like when it when we kind of get that like Mickey in like the the final match, kind of like mm-hmm. switch, switch, switch. Like like it's like it is like that like big like i don't know like the tension you need in that fight um so what do you make of the final bout in this film uh i find that again you 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 can't watch it without comparing to the first film can you really Mm -hmm. that last fight um and it helps that you had that refresher right at the beginning (laughs) Of Rocky Two with the last fight, even if it was just the highlights. But the, you, you kind of feel for both of them, I guess, because you know you feel bad for Apollo because he so badly wants to win and prove a point. But then you're so geed up for Rocky to be able to do it, just so he can say, "Look, this is the last time I'm doing this. It's done. I want to get on with my life." So you kind of, it's really weird. You kind of side with. I, I don't know if you did, but you side with both of the characters because mm-hmm. you just want them to get to the point where, okay, let's just, they just knock each other out and they both go down. It's, that's the end of it. You don't need to keep doing it, guys. <laughs> no more. And again, that carries over that idea of, of them always perpetually in competition with each other runs into Rocky Three as well, especially towards the end of the last, that last fight. Uh, but there's a, I think there's a mutual respect there by the end of the by the end of the boxing match. Uh, 
on a filmmaking level, like when they're both down, we get mm. that kind of like it all goes a bit woozy, doesn't it? And we like the score even goes a bit like like um mm. but for me, like and I think it's in in the final fight sequence, my MVP of the whole franchise is Tony Burton. Uh is yeah, Apollo's like corner man. And yeah. just like it's kind of like where it's like He's just like shout, do you know what I mean? It's just he's like the expressions on his face where he's like, he's like, stay down, stay down. And it's like, he fucking like, do you know what I mean? He really like, he, he's like the, the audience conduit to just like, he's showing us how futile this endeavor is to kind of, mm. and the kind of pig headedness of both. He's got, yeah, like him and Mickey, like, because like Mickey's kind of like, I think he does it in the first one where he's like, just stay down, just stay down. Mm. And that thing of like highlighting the pig headedness of both of them to kind of, they just want to win. And um, uh, yeah, I, what, what, what do you make? Do you think like that Adrian not being there takes away from that final fight? Or do you think it, it makes sense with the context of the story? I think it makes sense within the context of the story because if you're just going to, you know, if you were to just have her there again, like turn up like she does at the end of the first one, and that's when he gets, you know, the energy to keep going and doing what he needs to do, you know, I think, I think it would devalue everything that had come before the fight and all of those emotional moments and those character moments. Having her not be there and it just be Rocky on his own. He's strong, he, like, he's strong enough not to have her there. He, he knows she's there in spirit or mentally. Yeah. He doesn't need to have her in his corner. And I just think that it's really great that Stallone did that and not have Adrian be that kind of that, that good wife, so to speak, just being there going, you can keep going and you keep doing this. It's like, no, he, he got this. He has to do this on his own. Yeah. And he has to keep going. And I love that about it. Well, it's a happy think, a- it's a happy accident that that happened because mm. Talia Shire had conflicts in her schedule that she was filming old boyfriends and couldn't couldn't be there. But I think the fact that she isn't there, one makes sense because she's got a newborn and it's just been in a coma, but mm. also like very much plays to the whole thing and the themes of this film that he is like kind of his world is like split into two where he's got this thing of like his pride and the fight and stuff like that. But he's got his, like he's got his wife and I think like to just, yeah, for her to just turn up or to just be there wouldn't have shown that kind of like, she's okay with you doing it. But at the end of the day, like what, like what means the most is you should be like, do you know what I mean? You, you need to come home and be there for that, that woman. And yeah. That child. Yeah, and it's it's really, and again, I think that just adds more to the emotional core of the whole film, really. Uh, and I think I can't remember from the top of my head, but is I don't Apollo's wife is in. Is she, I can't remember if she's in the crowd or she's not there. She's in the crowd. Uh, yeah, we get some like yeah. lots of like tight zooms and like pan react like the camera pans round to people's faces. She's like I think her yeah. point, she's like oh. Yeah, so I think that. He, her being there and, and her reactions, it's a, it's a really nice counterpoint to what happened with Rocky in the first one with Apollo. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just the two sides of the same coin, isn't it, really? Yeah. And I think that's why they, both of those films work 
so well as a good bookend to each other. Uh, so yeah, I, I had no idea about that. Uh, with the that that's the reason why she wasn't in that sequence. It just made sense to me that oh no, she wouldn't be there because she's had a coma and she's got a kid. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and it makes sense throughout this film that all these kind of like uh, extenuating circumstances that kind of happen, whether it's Sylvester Sloan getting injured or like that mm. conflict that make for a better film because they make like they they kind of make the filmmakers Sylvester Sloan in this case be a bit more creative and come up with these new ideas that that really benefit the story if if anything mm. and like I don't know when like I'm not sure how you feel but when I get to the end when you get that line of Rocky like going yeah, it's like I just want to. I just want to roll into Rocky Free, like immediately. I'm just like I just. I, I they just blow me. In. I have this. I have the same feeling. I end up standing up during the fights. Like I feel like I'm there. I'm like I, I, I'm, I'm in a fur coat and tinted sunglasses, like I'm Gazo. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> what they don't know is that what I can see right now is you're in a fur coat and tinted sunglasses. So, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sidelining as a loan shark <laughs> yeah you're working with Paulie um, um, yeah I know I know what you mean He, I think Stone has this ability to, to uh, invoke realism and energy into, into, into his films and his writing well mm-hmm. um, and I, I certainly feel like those those instances where he's had to, they've had to change things depending on what's happened within production is really a, a low budget filmmaker's mentality. You know, it doesn't matter if he's if he about the Oscars or anything like that that came before it with the first Rocky film. What he's able to do is he's able to go, no, I'm from a low budget background and I need to figure out a way around this, like a low budget filmmaker would, and go, okay, well, this is a solution to this problem. It's fascinating, actually, when you look at it. Um, and I, it, it makes me respect Stallone more, not just as an actor, but certainly as a, as a writer, and a, a, particularly a screenwriter, and what he's able to do. And I, and I also know he's a phenomenal editor. Yeah. So he knows exactly how to structure a good fight sequence uh, well, to the well, best yeah. of his ability. I think this film like, ended up taking like eight months or something in like editing because Sylvester mm. Stallone was so particular about that final fight and he had to get it right. Like, well, the guy, the guy's so much of, of like a kind of perfectionist. You can tell that Rocky four has kind of been weighing on his mind for all these years that like, I think it's November this year. We're going to see the, the director's cut of that film. Like, mm. so it's like, yeah, so it's, it's, He's a fascinating, he's an interesting guy. Well, we've made it to the final round. We're both unscathed, uh, Dom. Uh, <laughs> did, w- did you manage to find any Coppola connections between this film, people who worked on it? or? So, I knew you were going to ask me this when we had a chat, and I went, okay, what can I do? So I managed to have six pages worth of connections. So I don't know how many you want me to go through, Well, but no, I've got quite a few. Right, let's let let's trade them off. Uh, I'll let you go first with one, and then and then, well, yeah, we'll do a few, and then if it's getting to the point where it's like this could go on a while, uh, we'll nip it in the bud. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I'll I'll save you 
I definitely know you haven't got this one. If you have, I'd be well impressed. So I've got a bit of the, I don't like using the term deep cut, but this is super deep cut. Um, so we've got obviously Bert Young as uh, our favorite man, non-favorite man, Paulie. Now, Paulie, uh, sorry, Bert Young was in, and this is me making my sequel collections as well, by the way, uh, Amityville to the Possession, which is a, actually a really great, really uncomfortable sequel and actually probably one of the best Amityville films outside of uh, some of the later ones that I really enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Amityville 2 was directed by um, an Italian director. I've forgotten his, the top, on the top of my head his name. But it was, he also had an uncredited uh, screenwriter on it called uh, Dardano uh, Sacenti, and he wrote uh, Demons 2. Now, Demons 2 was directed by Lamberto Barva, whose dad, Mario Barber, directed Danger Diabolik with John Philip Law, and he was in Barbarella with Jane Fonda. But Jane Fonda was also the sister of Peter Fonda, who acted uh, alongside Dennis Hopper in uh, Easy Rider, and then Dennis Hopper was also in Apocalypse Now. Well, that, that's, that, 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 is a, that is a very deep cut. Uh, well, let me go for one that is... A much closer connection. Frank McRae, mm. who plays the um, meatpacking foreman, was in mm-hmm. Christopher Coppola's adaptation of the Michael Allred comic uh, graphic music, G-Men from Hell, from the year 2000. Mm. Okay, let's see if I can get a slightly smaller one. <laughs> <laughs> let's see what I can do. Um, uh, let's see. Okay, it's going to be another deep cut. I'm sorry. But he, obviously, Frank Stallone is in the film really briefly, which is obviously Stallone's yep. uh, brother. Um, and uh, Frank Stallone was in probably one of the best bad films you'd ever see, which is called uh, Terror in Beverly Hills, uh, which starred uh, Cameron Mitchell, who appeared in a low-budget horror film called... Uh, in the, uh, from a whisper to a scream, which is a really great anthology horror film, mm-hmm. uh, and that was written by a guy called Darren Scott, and he directed Tales from the Hoods, which starred uh, the late Clarence Williams III, and he starred in Deadfall with Shire, uh, Taylor Shire, and Nicolas Cage. Perfect, I love it. Um, here's one for you: Bill Butler, the DOP on this film, is also the DOP on. The Conversation, The Rain People, and did second unit uh, cinematography work on The Godfather. Oh, I'm enjoying the fact that neither of us have got any similars at the moment. This is pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, yes. Um, Right, let's have a look. I'll try and find a shorter one for you. Okay, really weird, really, really weird deep cut. You said tenuous, so I'm going to do as tenuous as possible. So Perfect. bear with me. I'll have some tenuous connections. Yeah, and it also has a as a as a because I like what we're talking about. It's also going to have a brief cage connection as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so obviously we have that wonderful, wonderful comic book adaptation, Daredevil, um, <laughs> which stars uh, Joe Pantaleano, who. Um, 
is in quite a lot of a lot of films. He was in The Matrix with uh, Keanu Reeves, uh, but he's also uh, in uh, a film called Midnight Run, which is one of my favourite comedy films with Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. And Robert De Niro was obviously in Godfather Part Two. There you go. That's the last short one for you that I connected. Uh, and then obviously Tilla Shire is also in Godfather as well. Yep. So there you go. That's a nice little easy one there that I thought I'd do. I'll rattle off a quick, uh, a quick, no, yeah, another couple of short ones, and mm. then we'll go for one more, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. Uh, the first assistant director, uh, Jerry Zeisman is in and is the second unit director on Apocalypse Now. John S. Kofi was the boom operator on Brubaker, a film in which Nicolas Cage was an extra, and stuntman Jimmy Nickerson did stunts in Con Air. Oh, nice. So one more final Coppola connection from you, Dom. What have you got for me? I've got, uh, okay, so we've got, Obviously, Tyler Shire's uh, brother is obviously Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola directed a film called Rumblefish with Matt Dillon. Uh, Matt Dillon was in The House That Jack Built uh, with a, another actor called Jeremy Davis, who was in a film called Million Dollar Hotel mm-hmm. with Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare was in John Wick 2 with Keanu Reeves, and Keanu Reeves was in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Peter Stormare is also in... Armageddon, which John yep. Schwartzman is the DOP on, who is a Coppola. Uh, he is in uh, Rage or Tokarev, depending on the territory you <laughs> in, uh, playing an Irishman uh, alongside Nicolas Cage, and is also in 8mm as Dino Valentino, I think his name is, or something like that. That kind mm-hmm. of like, yeah, the, the porn mogul. Um, yeah, it seems about right. My, my, yeah, one of my favourites, Peter Stormare. Uh, I've always had an idea of doing a podcast called I Can't Believe He's Not Russian. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, that made me laugh a little bit too hard. <laughs> <laughs> so the Coppola family are synonymous now, especially with wine. Uh, what would be your perfect wine pairing for Rocky II? Uh, so I wanted to, uh, to bring in Rocky's character into this a bit more. So I've got you, I've got a red and a white for you. Depends what you're in the mood for. So if you want something a bit robust and punchy, I've got a nice Argentinian Melbeck. Oh, lovely. Nice. Uh, and, I, uh, and then if you want something which is actually what Rocky's real personality is, which is a, a, a mellow, easygoing, Quaffable, I'd go for a nice uh, Viognier. Lovely, lovely. I think I, I personally think this film, yeah, it does. It you would probably want to session those both together because you, you have that kind of punchy, like serious deepness from the red, but then mm. you also you also get the lightheartedness and the kind of sweetness from Rocky. So I think this is definitely this is uh, you get pissed with this film because. <laughs> Because you, you you need you need the blend. You don't need a rosé. You need a bottle of white no. and a bottle of red. Perfect. Um, so is this a bottom shelf, middle shelf, or top shelf wine? This is a middle shelf wine. Okay. This is a nice middle because much like Rocky, you don't want to 
you know, you, you want to aim for the good stuff, but also you don't want to aim too high because you might fall down a, a long way. So you want to go, okay, if I stay within my middle ground here, I'm happy with that. I'll stay there. And it just goes to show that, you know, both Hollow and Rocky go too high and it's, that's, that's where they, uh, that's their downfall is their <laughs> egos. So they stay in the middle, stay in the middle ground. That's not to say don't aim for it, but just stay in the middle ground on a daily basis. So would you recommend people watch this film if they haven't already? Absolutely. I would absolutely. I would also recommend it as a double build to watch Rocky 1 and 2 back to back because it seems like one interconnected film because it just, oh, the way it takes off. So yeah, I would, I would say also watch it with Rocky 1. Perfect. And um, yeah, what I like to, what, well, what I want to do going forward, especially with anything that's a, a franchise or, or sequels, is to get your personal ranking of the Rocky films. Where does this fall within your ranking of the Rockies? Mm. So without anybody really being surprised, it's, it's at the top. You know, this is number one for me. Uh, do you want me to list the rest of them? Because it gets quite controversial going down. Oh, yes, please. We love a bit of controversy on... Uh, oh, I'm going to get hunted down on Twitter. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> it, I've got... So, Rocky Two, and then that's uh, closely followed by Rocky Balboa. Mm-hmm. Because I just feel like those two, even if you haven't seen the first one, Rocky Two and Rocky Balboa just work perfectly together as well. Uh, and then after that, obviously, we go in Rocky Four. Uh, okay. Then I'd go Rocky. I'll go the first Rocky, mm-hmm. and then I'd go Rocky Five, then Three. Hey, hey, hey! There's nothing. I, I, I know there's a lot of people with a soft spot for that fifth entry. And there's yeah. gonna be there's gonna be no hunting down uh, on this. Uh, obviously, I'm not gonna give away um, my, my 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 ranking. I, I, I might save that until we get to number five on an episode that probably a lot of people won't listen to. They'll be like, oh, I hate that film. <laughs> so I'll listen to it, mate. It's all uh, good. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, um, let yeah, as we start to wrap this up, I always like to end on a few questions um, that I am yeah deeming to be more and more glad that I am on the asking end as opposed to the receiving end. Uh, the first one of which is, which couple of family member would you keep, but in doing so, you get rid of the filmography of all of the other family members? Oh, what does I have? Uh, I would get rid of... Uh, I know, you, keep? you got to keep one. you got to keep I've got one. got to keep yeah. one. I, <laughs> you know, I'm going to... Can I... I'm going to keep Cage. I'm going to keep Cage. Yeah, bloody yeah. That that I think that's uh, close to the right answer. That's uh... yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I I I've got I've got I I really don't. I I know a lot of people will I'll get strung up for this, but I'm not a massive fan of Sofia Coppola's film, so um, <laughs> just can't. I can't say yeah. I'm glad that's getting rid of. Bye. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we will we will talk about cage a little bit more but for mm-hmm. regular listeners you have to sign up to the patreon to be able to hear that chat um so are they the greatest film family of all time 
Yes, after the board wins. Really? You, you, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm <laughs> really, really joking. Um, no, they aren't. I think they are. They've got. Uh, there's a lot of talent there. Maybe a bit of nepotism too. Uh, but yeah, there's some. There's some absolutely quality films there in that in that back catalogue. I mean, the less they really say about Jack, the better. But there's some. <laughs> there's some absolute quality films there uh, that Coppola's both produced and directed. Perfect. Well, I'm very interested to hear your answer to this final question after hearing your opinion on Sophia Coppola. But what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? I quite like Ghostbusters 2016. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Well, that feels like a perfect place to end the podcast. So, if anyone wants to keep uh, keep up to date with everything you're doing, whether it's um, I know you're writing a book we talked about mm-hmm. uh, off, off mic. Uh, yeah, what can you tell us about that, and where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing, Dom? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter under uh, at that sequel guy. Um, I also have a site called that sequel guy as well, which is that sequel guy wordpress.com. Uh, and uh, the book I'm currently writing is about two very uh, cult uh, sci-fi films about uh, a Japanese uh, character called The Giver. Uh, And I'm currently talking to a lot of people about that. So it's behind the scenes and how it was all made on on such a low budget with both of those films. Perfect. Well, uh, yeah, I can't can't wait to to eventually read it when it comes out. Uh, Thank you so much, Dom, for coming and making some Coppola connections with me. No worries. It's, it's been an absolute blast, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and thank you so much to Dom O'Brien for joining me to talk about this ultimate sequel of sequels. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) there'll be more obviously Rocky chat coming up in the future and I believe this episode was another tick in the box for the Coppola's being the greatest film family of all time. If you agreed or disagreed with everything in this conversation, if you think that Dom is completely wrong with his ranking of the uh, Rocky franchise or even uh, his opinions on Sofia Coppola, don't aim them at him. Aim them at me. Or if there's anything I said in this that is egregious to you, please do contact me on all social media. So that is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, all at CagedInPod. Or you can send me an email is caged in pod at gmail.com over the next couple of weeks we've got uh, a lot of chat coming for you so this friday is a amazing conversation i had with brett w buckman all about his work as an editor uh, working with spectavision but more importantly working on mandy color out of space and the new michael sonoski pig that is released in the States this coming Friday, the 16th of July. So it's the perfect time to release that conversation with Brett. 
As for next week's film, I'll be joined by M from Verbal Diorama, where we had a fantastic chat all about the John Schwartzman lens Jurassic World. So do be sure to check that one out, as well as send in your little voice notes or written reviews of that film. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. As always, I've been Petros Patsilibus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember to keep it Coppola, and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Drip Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.